Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. Hello there. Thanks for joining us again on Recycler Secrets Podcast. Today's guest is Tom Perkis of Aggregate Management. Tom's a 40-year veteran in the solid waste and recycling business, and Tom specializes in glass recycling and zero-waste programming. Tom does a ton of cool things with a ton of cool people. And before we get started, Tom, just take a couple of minutes and tell the folks at home a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been in the, uh, in the recycling business, the aggregate business, for about 40 years. Uh, I've transitioned from recycling concrete, asphalt, gravels, things like that, into industrial waste products that people wanted to keep out of the landfill, people wanted recycled. That got me into glass and been going down that road, uh, well, for 10 years anyways. Fantastic. So let's talk about glass markets a little bit. So glass has a, a lot of different channels that it can go down. And I know that you do a lot of industrial glass, yes. but over the years, you've also done a lot of building demolition glass where they're pulling out windows from an old building and, you know, refurbing that into condo units and you're taking all that old glass and helping them be a, you know, a lead building or a zero waste building endeavor. Correct. So can you talk through those markets a little bit? Just give us kind of a broad picture of the glass market. Sure. You have uh, in, in deconstruction of old buildings, uh, you have def different uh, types of glass. Uh, so in order to evaluate it, you need to know the different types that would be in the window, whether it's laminate, safety glass, annealed glass, all has different properties. And like most recycling nowadays, needs to be kept separate from one another. So as in any uh, recycling effort, you need to keep your different products separate from one another. Um, so that's a big part of it. Uh, as far as the, uh, the markets for that type of glass, uh, the most valued is clear glass. And to most people, any glass you can see through is clear, which is not the case. Uh, all glass has some type of a tint or color in it. And a, and a true clear glass is crystal clear, like a diamond. Uh, and funny enough, there's not much window glass made that way anymore right most of your window glass is going to have low e treatments and other correct. other aspects to it right correct yes and if they have a coating on it that affects the value of the glass affects what it can be used for they have different markets for that the clear glass generally is uh, taken to a, a glass recycling facility that would mill that glass down to powder that powder is generally the highest value recycled glass and that's sold to glass manufacturers and what that does is it helps them lower their energy cost by lowering the heat in their kiln to melt the sand and make new glass uh, recycled glass that glass powder will melt at a much lower temperature than sand 
uh, that they use for glass. So that's the value that they'll save 25 to 35 percent of their energy cost by using 25 percent recycled glass. So that's the fun fact that I don't think a lot of people know is when you talk about recycled glass, they think, well, glass becomes a new bottle and, and they don't understand the matrix behind it. So it's really that 20 to 30 percent energy savings of converting sand into glass versus the glass powder back into glass, right? Correct. So that's the value matrix for the manufacturer. That's right. So then you can see that if you had uh, like green glass, like a green bottle, and you crush that or grind that up, the only thing that can go into is more green glass. So most of that type of glass, MRF glass, would more likely go into like fiberglass, things that the color didn't make a difference. Okay. So while you're talking about MRF glass, when you blend all those different colors together, that's what you're talking about there. It has to go into a, a different product other than a, a new glass bottle. It has to go into a fiberglass or a fiberglass shingle, perhaps. Correct. Something of that nature. So in MRF glass, what's the largest problem there? I mean, we as consumers want glass recycling, but on the MRF side, there's problems. And then on the processing side where you come in, there's problems. Yes, and, and primarily the problems with the recycling of MRF glass or bottle glass, uh, consumer glass, is the contamination. Uh, people, most people are quite diligent about cleaning the bottle out, putting it in a separate uh, recycling box container uh, to get it to the MRF. The problem is that glass is generally not picked out at the very beginning of the MRF process. It's generally one of the last items, and by the time it gets through the MRF and to its final stage, it is broke down to smaller pieces, which cannot be manually picked, uh, can be optically separated. That's a big issue and an ex quite an expense, so most people don't go to those great lengths. So consequently, you get your MRF glass mixed with dunnage, dirt, if you would, from other materials that were in the MRF process. And it comes off the end with little bits of plastic that didn't get picked off the belt. Uh, and again, just different, uh, different types of uh, contamination. Okay. So when you're talking recycling household consumable glass, the best method there is probably a dual stream process, source separation process. Correct. And, and best practice probably would then be sole isolated glass containers. Correct. And that's the only way you're going to have a good quality product then for the end processor or the recycler. That's correct. And, and generally most of the, that type of glass that I recycle comes from a bottler, bottles that didn't make the grade to move on to get filled. So then you get a truckload of brown glass bottles. That has value. That has value to a glass recycler. They can take the brown glass bottles by themselves and make new brown bottles with it. Uh, that, that's the fast, easy method to do it. But for consumers, yeah, I would say one of the better would be to have a container for glass, keep it separate from the rest of the stream of recyclables. 
When we're talking about pure weights and measures of glass recycling, industrial glass has to outweigh residential glass. Is that true? Oh, by all means, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the industrial glass generally is heavier, thicker, uh, generally a lot more of it because when you get industrial glass, you don't get a few bottles. You get a large amount. In deconstruction, you'll get a building full of glass, many windows, those have to be taken out of the frames. Generally, the people doing the deconstruction just like to pull the window out of the unit and set it in a container to ship it over to the recycler so that the glass has to be taken out of the uh, frames. Uh, any uh, film that might be on the glass needs to be removed. So it's an intense process. So let's walk through a, a, a high-rise uh, rewindowing unit. Yeah. So a, a contractor comes in, and he's going to replace all the glass in this building, and he contacts you to recycle that glass. He's going to pull the actual window with its casing out of, the, out of the building, place it into some sort of a truck or a container to come to you, and then you have to deconstruct that frame off. So you're doing more than glass recycling. You're also metal recycling as well. Oh, sure. Oh, exactly. Yep. yep. So you're reclaiming that aluminum, and then you're going to reclaiming that glass portion of it. That's correct. Or wood. Same thing with the wood. Okay. So what's the value proposition for a, a contractor to do that sort of glass recycle versus just do a building demo versus throwing it in the landfill? What's their cost benefit? Cost is, is uh, significantly higher, as, as is in most deconstruction projects. Um, the cost difference, I would, wouldn't want to guess, but it's significantly higher to do that than to send it to the landfill, certainly. But in order to meet a, a LEED certification or a zero-waste building endeavor, that's part of the driving force behind those kind of... Uh... Exactly. They want some certification that those materials were properly recycled and taken to a new new uh, life in, uh, in the scheme of things. So when communities are looking to do redevelopment, having them on the front side of it require LEED certification for these buildings is important then? Oh, certainly. Certainly is, sure. Yep, that's a big part of deconstructing a building. Right. Because I would assume that the majority of contractors in the world are going to take the least costly mechanism. Sure, if they're not under some type of a guideline, that they would certainly. Right. So when you talk about in industrial glass, you know that ranges, you know, from everything from plate glass, um, you know, on a windowing manufacturing side to automotive glass. Yes, lens glass. Lens correct. glass. Mm -hmm. So that's all tempered glass as well. Sure. So that's got to be a, a separated item as well then because of the temperament of it, correct? Oh, it would, yeah. Al almost every industrial site that has glass is different from one another. So very few of them you can combine uh, into, in, together. You need to have them separated. Uh, you have lens glass on, on autos. You have mirror glass on an auto. Uh, mirror glass can be recycled. Chromium can be an issue, but not quite as much as burying the chromium. So, uh, yeah, we try to move all that type of glass. We just have to keep it separated. Right. And so on the automotive side, do you get some of that deconstruction as well? Are they 
when they're sending components to you, and let's just take the new automotive Deming mirrors, is there still some electronics and, and wiring and gadgetries attached to that sometimes that you have to deal with? Generally, uh, most of the glass that you get from those facilities are, is their offall from the actual cutting of the mirror okay. or, or whatever product they're making. So that's generally what we like to take. Occasionally, you'll get a, a finished product. We try not to get that. We try to discourage them that from giving us that. We don't need the electronics. We don't want it. Uh, we don't do much with the plastics that are surrounding that mirror or lens. Right. So we generally try to convince the uh, manufacturer to uh, deal with that and give us the glass. Okay. So when you're... When you're thinking about the different markets that bring glass into you, can you kind of rattle through some of those for our listeners? Where are places? I mean, we've talked about deconstruction. We've talked about automotive a little bit. Where are other places that glass is coming into you to be recycled from? Get quite a bit of glass uh, of these, uh, oh, you know, any of your front doors that have a window in it. Those are window inserts. So we get quite a few of those. Uh, and again, those inserts have to be taken apart. Uh, so that's, that's a issue. Uh, but we do that. Uh, we see a lot of offall from that type of glass as well, from them cutting the specific sizes. From the door manufacturers. From door manufacturers, that's correct, yep. Window manufacturers, same thing. Um, yeah, and then the bottlers, the, uh, the people that... Uh, brew beer and bring in bottles to bottle and they get a bad load or something goes wrong in the process, labeling doesn't get on properly, all those types of things you run into. So your sites are in Michigan and from Michigan, you can really go two ways. I mean, you've got a glass processor over in Detroit and you've got one down in Chicago-ish. Mm-hmm. So transportation is a, a key component of this. Oh, sure. Transportation is an issue uh, no matter where you take it. And that's the same with most recyclables now today. If, if the recyclable material uh, doesn't have enough value, you have to cover the transportation. And that's, that's more the case than not. So a lot of times I know that glass is also used as a filler. Can yes. you talk a little bit about that? They, they can grind glass uh, to a very fine, fine uh, powder, and we've used that, in, and not only as a filler, but we've used it as a cement replacement in concrete uh, up to 20 25%, and it actually benefits the concrete. The uh, reason that has not caught on uh, is the cost of taking that glass and making it into a powder as fine as Portland cement, which is, that's what it needs to be. So that, that ends up costing because it's done on such a small scale, the cost of that milling is more than the cost of buying Portland cement. So it's not caught on, uh, universally, but it has been proven in many studies that it, it increases the life and the strength of that glass tenfold. Uh, so I, I do see in the future a use such as that. So as you, you talked about that milling process, what could we do as a nation to make that more durable? What, what would that look like? 
in order to create uh, a more of an infrastructure around that, make that a process that was more available? Well, I th- again, anytime you're looking at a building material, uh, you have to pass all these specifications, ASTM specifications, every different construction unit has a different set of standards. And that, that honestly is one of the bigger hurdles. Um, I think if, uh, if you could get over all of that and people actually wanted to pay for the value of having their concrete driveway last 30 years instead of 10 years, uh, I think it would catch on. Uh, but it would need to be done you know, as a normal course of business, so built into the business. So the state probably has some some way in on that. So if the the MDOT in Michigan here, the Michigan Department of Transportation, were to specify that material had to be included in all new highway construction, that would be a driver to get that process moving. Sure, certainly it would. And we did another. We did a project with MDOT oh, a few years ago. Um, they wanted to try glass as an aggregate for f- a free flow aggregate base for a parking lot. So it would be a parking lot that rather than having the water run off to the edges and into a ditch or a drain, this asphalt pavement would be free draining. Water would drain through the pavement. Then they needed to have a free flowing aggregate base that water would flow through. Typical sub-base aggregates uh, don't allow for that free-flowing just like pavements don't. So they needed a coarse, small stone aggregate that was durable, that wasn't going to break down. And they thought, let's try glass. Because glass, when you, when you run it through a mill uh, or a crusher, it, it takes off a lot of the sharp edges. You don't have jagged sharp edges. And it makes small pieces, uh, like small stone, and they don't degrade. Over time, they keep their shape, so they continue to be free-flowing. That project worked quite well, uh, but it's the only project I've seen like it. And the parking lot, which I now watch on a pretty regular basis, is holding up very well. Uh, so there are uses. MDOT's aware of the uses. Uh, it's getting them pushed through and the increased cost. Right. And so I think that ties into, you know, the compost markets too. I mean, MDOT could be one of the largest users or the Department of Road and Transportations in any state could be one of the largest users of compost. Certainly. As, you know, roadside uh, backlay um, to, you know, help absorb more liquids coming off the roads versus the runoff that happens. So I think that, you know, like traditional markets, it really comes back to developing those end markets and making those specifications or requirements, you know, within state guidelines or within lead building certification guidelines. And, and those type of things are what's going to make it durable in the long run. Would you agree? Certainly. That's right. Okay. Exactly. So let's shift, you know, pages here a little bit. You also do a, a ton of consulting in the zero waste market. Correct. Tell us about what zero waste means to you. Zero waste to me, um, basically means whether it's an individual, whether it's a business, uh, it it means to to do your best uh, and endeavor to have nothing that's not reused, repurposed, or recycled. 
So sometimes it's difficult, and you don't achieve it overnight. It takes a, a lot of uh, effort to find homes for things that you would never imagine would have a home. Uh, food waste is a good example. You know, people put some food waste in a in their backyard garden, compost pile, that type of thing. But to get it uh, to get it up and going on a community basis or a city, county, or a statewide uh, basis, you you need to have the proper the proper setting for it, the proper controls, and and have it done properly. So from from food waste to your office paper to cardboard. All those items have to be looked at as a, a separate product. Almost look at it as something, if you're a manufacturer, something you produce. Because it isn't, it isn't waste. It's, it's a byproduct of what you're producing. A material resource. A material resource, exactly. So, and as a, as a material resource or as a product, people get confused and want to just throw it all in one bin. And that's okay for some products that you can do single stream recycling with. But in general, people have to think of, like when you go to the grocery store to pick up fresh produce, you don't throw all the different produce into one bag. You put them in separate bags. So when you get home, they're not mixed up. One doesn't have carrot tops in your lettuce. Uh, and, and, and if you think of it in that way and then find, develop, or create a new home for that product, to me, that's the way to get to zero waste. Uh, there's also zero waste to landfill, which a lot of people use that, and their, their thought is, well, we'll burn it as fuel in a waste energy facility. And that, that works, that's good, and you create energy, Hopefully you're not contaminating the environment or sending any more CO2 off than what a landfill gas is off, which generally in now today's modern waste energy facilities, they don't do that. It's much, much less it's captured. Uh, but that's not the full answer. You, you need to, and it needs to go back to the beginning of your business process. What am I going to use to make widget A? What, I'm, what am I going to have left over after widget A is made? And is there a use for the leftovers? And that could help guide you as to what you actually make your widget out of. So you and I both have a colleague in, in talking about zero waste to landfill. One of his uh, known statements when he does a presentation is, oh, you want to be zero waste? I can make that happen tomorrow. We have an incinerator down the road. Right. And you and I, I think, both agree that that's not necessarily the full answer to zero waste it's one avenue towards it sure but when a when a company comes to you and wants to discuss how they're going to get to zero waste what does that conversation start at what's that process look like uh, first thing you have to do is identify what is your waste and surprisingly enough many of the people that that are in business that I go talk to about this are quite surprised what their actual waste stream looks like. And so you need to start there and get them to understand the process. And when you work through it that way, if they are committed to it, they generally understand that, that their waste is 
a byproduct of their production. And it's difficult to get them to change sources. But many times the supplier that they buy their raw material from will take the offfall or the whatever's left after they make widgets will take it back and incorporate it back into their product. And I, and I think that's probably one of the, the easiest and best ways to do it because who knows that product better than the people that actually first produced it. So working with your tier one and tier two partners to, to make sure that that off-spec material goes back to them. Certainly. So like in the automotive industry, you see a lot of fiber that ends up into the bedding underneath the carpets. Yep. Um, and that's a, a great example of, you know, other industries recycling material into a separate industry. So there's some of that as well. Sure, sure. Uh, powder coat paint. Uh, they're starting to use that as uh, sound insulation in vehicle bodies. Uh, that's at a very young age and uh, it's very isolated. But those are the type of things that people can do. Uh, if if they put a lot enough effort into it. So and, and I know that you're part of a, a zero waste user group, and I know that that's a big. It's networking. It's it's sure figuring out. You know, if manufacturer of this widget can use a byproduct from the manufacturer of this other product. Correct. And like you said, in the the powder coat. So for those who aren't familiar with paint, automotive doesn't use powder coating in their paint. So that's a manufacturing thing that you see when you look at a an Ikea table, for example. That paint that's on an Ikea table is going to be powder coat. Where when you look at a car, that's not a powder coated paint. So that powder coating material that's going into the automotive industry is coming out of another industry. Certainly. And so that's part of that, that transition. How do you get uh, a company who's coming to you to talk about zero waste to understand the cost because there's there's multiple rings of cost involved in developing a much more substantial, sustainable program within your organization. And like you said, I think there's a commitment that comes to it, but a lot of times I think you get uh, uh, a young sustainability manager into an old company and they say, oh, we want to go this route. And by the time you bring that up to the board, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So how do you get through that conversation? What's that look like? And I know it changes with every company. Oh, it does. It's, it's different with, with everyone because every, every, almost every manufacturer that I've gone to, they, they have different levels of commitment. And within that company, people have different levels of commitment. Many times it's because they don't fully understand. Uh, they don't understand the process. They don't understand what it actually takes to make themselves more sustainable. So that's generally how you have to start the conversation. Uh, I really don't go through and justify our costs. I explain to them what has to happen, how it's handled, how it's transported, uh, and all those things go into the cost. But generally it's their level of understanding and then their level of commitment. So Tom, as we're talking about zero waste, one of the, the companies that you and I both have some experience in, um, which is uh, the, one of the largest beanbag manufacturers in the United States, who's headquartered out of Grand Rapids, um, but has multiple sites across the country, went down a zero waste channel five years ago now, I guess it was. 
And, you know, that has progressed really far. So when I was initially involved in it before, uh, before you took that over, the, the, it was driven by one of the co-founders of the organization uh, who had a huge commitment and passion project towards zero waste. Uh, and really total sustainability within the organization, motors and everything. Sure. And so what started as uh, how do we make sure we're doing the right things and making materials go to the right places, you know, really involved. And, you know, they had a bilingual workforce. So they came up with some very specific signage, um, you know, being a, a young progressive company, they've got a great graphics department internally. And so they came up with some great graphics that they then made available uh, out publicly for others to use in their own programs across the country, other manufacturers, and promoted that within their own, you know, local team of manufacturers. You know, talk a little bit about what you've seen in in a company like that that's really progressive. Well, you know, I think the thing that I've noticed after being involved with them for a few years is that that passion from one of the co-owners has spread to the employees. The employees, and, and, and you don't get 100%, but you get your, your 90% plus, uh, employees take it on personally that, hey, the boss thinks this is the right thing to do. I see the value in it. I think it's the right thing to do. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to make sure my fellow employee is doing it as well. And I think what they've seen from that is they have a lot less production waste by an employee that doesn't do his job properly. I think people pay more attention to what they're doing, more attention to, I don't want to create any more waste than we absolutely have to. So it it makes people, I think, more conscientious about their job and the job they're doing, and also about their neighbor, employee, uh, that that he's doing the right thing. And and they've carried it so much further as far as bringing in unused clothing that you may not use anymore that somebody else could use. And internally, they spread that around to the different employees. Like you say, they get temporary employees uh, in, in the busy seasons. And it just spreads the good word to everybody that, hey, do the right thing and do it every day. And uh, I, I think the benefits they've reaped from that are, are well and above uh, cost. I know that, you know, in, in that particular organization, it's also a big deal with their end channels. I mean, their sustainability percentage and their sustainability practices are something that, you know, they're, they're typically sold through large retail. Sure. And that's important to, you know, we'll use the largest retailer in the country and now Walmart. Walmart pays attention to companies that are sustainable. Oh, certainly. It's important to them. Oh, it certainly is. And it, yep, it, it gets you up the tiers much quicker with a company like that, that you show and you can prove that you are sustainable, that you are zero waste and, and the different initiatives that you do take on. Right. And so that organization has also won two or three awards now locally. Oh, yes, locally and nationally. And nationally. Yep. Um, for their efforts. And, 
you know, I think it's a, you know, a great example of, you know, driven commitment through the top tier downwards. Um, I know their facilities team, uh, you know, I always like to use the carrot and the stick phenology. I mean, they're really the stick phenology that, you know, they're walking around with a stick like, Hey, you're doing it wrong. And I'm here to tell you how to do it right. And so that's the passion within the employee as well. Sure. That's driven down. Um, and then they step out and do a lot of stuff in the community as well, where they're talking about that sustainability aspect as well. Sure. Yep, exactly. So you, you've got what a, a handful, 10 companies that you're doing zero waste initiatives with on any given moment. What's the biggest challenge in that space? The biggest challenge for me is uh, finding homes for new raw materials that they bring in. You don't get 100% cooperation uh, with most companies. Uh, they don't call me up ahead of time and say, we're thinking of using this product to make widget B. What do you think? They go ahead and do it, and then they call me up and go, hey, I have all this material. What are you going to do with it? What can I do with it? And so it puts me behind the gun to find a new home, uh, that's challenging in itself. And it just keeps me repeating to them that make sure what you're gonna build your units out of have a home after life. Uh, that's probably the biggest challenge that I have and it's pretty universal. And I know that that's probably gotta get more complicated now with some of the export restrictions that are happening. Oh, definitely has made it uh, considerably more challenging because now, before, you could have eh, cardboard that was eh, maybe had some tape on it, some glue on it, a label on it, uh, that type of thing. And because the markets have shrunk so uh, that the, uh, the end user, the mills, can be much more critical on what they will accept uh, because they don't need the volumes like they used to. Right. And so that's requiring more from their on-the-ground people, their facilities people, or, or their production team to present that product properly Correct. so that you can recycle it. And, and there's some time, money, and commitment to that as well from a manufacturer. Oh, certainly is. That's correct. Okay. So I know another big portion of your business has to do with wood waste. Yes. So in, in wood waste, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but wood waste is challenging because... You know, when you're talking about industrial woods with the glues and the adhesives that are within those, you know, the, the easiest way to make that product go away is incineration. Sure. Uh, creating power or um, steam out of it to create power. But there's only so many facilities in the United States that have the capability of taking that kind of product in. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And so it, it's really, it goes back to logistics here. So if you're a, a manufacturer that has a, a wood byproduct, and you're looking to make that go away, it's about a commitment to being able to cover the cost of the logistics to get it somewhere where that's acceptable as a fuel source. Certainly. What are the other challenges with that? Well, basically, uh, you, you, you mentioned it. The, the challenge is that there's only a limited amount of facilities that can take that as fuel, so we need to find other uses for that. Uh, and there are other uses out there. Uh, we even believe that it can be handled properly. It can be composted. Okay. And you can make a compost out of it. But it's not like composting the twigs that fell off your tree. 
Uh, it's, it's much more in-depth. It has to be monitored very closely. And so we've been looking at that and doing a few studies on that. There's a few other possibilities, such as uh, 3D printing. But again, that requires you to take that wood and mill it to a fine powder, which increase the cost greatly. Uh, again, anytime you're going to grind a, a desk down to powder, uh, you can only imagine what the cost involved are. Right. And I think that wood, much like um, a juice carton, has multiple layers to it. Oh, certainly it does. So yeah. if you start getting laminates on it or veneers on it, um, so all of those different add-ons mm-hmm. add a different complexity to it as well. Sure, sure. It's just just like the cardboard. If it has the tape on it, you know, what you got to do something with the tape. It's the label, that type of thing. How important, you talked a little bit about composting there again. I would assume that that then ties back to a specific adhesive because a lot of times we're talking about particle board when we talk about these woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in order to compost it in an environmentally f- sound fashion, you'd have to have a, a certain adhesive would you not? Uh, well, the the adhesive will will break down uh, in a in a composting effort, but but you need to get the the chemicals out first. That's that's the biggie. Uh, so so the the wood actually has to be processed and treated, pre-treated before you even think about composting it. So that's a pretty complex mechanism. Then. Certainly is. Yes, it is. Okay. So, Tom, is there anywhere else you want to go in our in our conversation today? Any other channels you want to walk down? No, I, I think the, the, the big thing, the big thing in, in all recycling is, you know, A, it needs to be clean. B, it needs to be segregated. Those, those two things help immensely. And, and if people do that, think of that, and also in manufacturing, think ahead before they take on the cheapest raw product to make their widget out of if they think ahead of what can be have a reuse for their waste. And I think if people keep that in mind, I think it'll steer them into an easier transition into uh, zero waste. Well, fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Perkis, before you part with us, tell us how to get in touch with you if they, if the folks out there want to reach out to you. Oh, you can, uh, Email me at tom.agman at gmail.com or you can call me at, on my cell phone at 269-506-6130. Tom, thanks very much for being with us today. And folks at home, remember, keep your earballs on me and your eyeballs on the road and we'll help guide you to the places where all the secrets are kept. Thanks again for joining us and have yourself a fantastic day.